from Colossians chapter 1. All you can get on a slide is right there, and that is the text. Colossians chapter 1, and says the following. He, you know who he's talking about. He, Jesus himself, he, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. These are the inspired words. This is the truth of God. This morning, now, whenever you see a list somebody offers, reading through a textbook of some kind, whatever it is, a list of the founders of the great religions, people will study these men, or almost always men, who have founded the big religious movements. I mean, you're always going to see Jesus listed in there. People will always, obviously, have him listed. He will be in there with those guys, with the likes of the Buddha, you know, and Muhammad, Confucius, whatever continent you're on. Even Zoroaster. Huh? You didn't even think he existed, but yeah, he was one of them too, sort of the Persian guy. And this, there's, a, there's a pantheon of these kind of figures. He will be in there. And then, and then any time, likewise, that you're looking at... Just great spiritual leaders people consider, men who are great religious spiritual type leaders. Jesus will always be in there with a similar cast of people. And maybe some others that didn't found one of the big religions, but they're still considered some kind of great religious figures, spiritual leaders. Certain Hindu gurus had great fame, millions of followers, Zen masters, or whoever it might be. And for that matter, even if somebody's just listing, I don't know, naming a... Great wise men of history, the wise ones, the good moral teachers, you know, who taught us things that are worth remembering and so on. Jesus is likely to also get mentioned by them. He might be in there with somebody like Socrates, all sorts of other people. They might throw in certain, you know, Dalai Lamas and so on. A Gandhi might show up and you just don't know. But here's the question. Of which... Of any of those names that I just rattled off in those kind of lists, of which of any of those kind of people, would it be said, could it be said, or is it ever commonly said, that that person is, well, look at the slide again, the very image of God, or that by him, or through him, or for him, everything was created? Or that he is before all things, and that in him all things hold together? Of, of, of which of them? Any? Save the one? So we're going to do a few messages out of the book of Colossians, a little book wedged in there with other letters. The, in fact, we should probably call it the letter to the Colossians. Originally, that's what it was. And, you know, if you were in Sunday school and somebody said... 
Now, what's the book of Colossians about? And you gave what we always have, what has always been affectionately known as the Sunday school answer. What would you say? Jesus. And of course, looking here at this passage here in the first chapter, I mean, that's kind of cheating, but you'd be right, of course. Sort of an easy one. But yeah, that's why it's the Sunday school answer. You'd be right. In this case, you'd be profoundly right. Because here you have in this early part of this letter, I mean, this is as this is this is as glowing a portrait. To use a phrase we sometimes use, and so therefore, to answer that question that I posed, who among all those leaders will we say these kinds of things about? The fact is, none of them. None of them. I mean, obviously, other than this one. And what we see in this passage here, you know. Even people who follow those guys today, even even those writers who make those lists, going or going back to the people who originally thought those men were great men, they may have said a lot of great things about them. Certainly they did. And may have, uh, to some extent or another, given them some kind of worship. Said they were better than most ordinary men. Had something special, something whatever. But, but this, these words here, were really not claimed by any of them nor thought to be the case by even their devoutest followers. This is certainly one of the things that makes Jesus undeniably distinct from all these other figures that I mentioned. It's this very thing. This really sets him apart. Just the sheer audacity of the magnitude of these claims like we see here. And not only here. This isn't just some oddball thing that this one letter happens to be teaching. I mean, it's found throughout. And in fact, that Bible study that was mentioned earlier is what's it called? Better? What's it called? From Hebrews. Well, you know what that's referring to. Who is better? I mean, again, the Sunday school answer applies. The book of Hebrews is just that same theme, written mostly to people who believe the law and the prophets and the writings and all that stuff to say, he's better than all that. He's superior to all of that. And so it's a recurring theme. So let's just think about a few of the things said in this passage here and see if we can't get an get an idea of what he's saying other than just the fact that we see and we understand that this is a powerful theology. This is a this is a belief about Jesus that defies just the ordinary listing among the others. This is what and here's your theological term of the day. This is what the theologians would call a high Christology. And what they mean by that is just that, you know, your Christology is just what you believe about Christ. Your, your take on who Jesus is. Your understanding. Your belief about Him. Is it high or is it low? Most people in the world would probably say that theirs is fairly high insofar as that they would say He's a great guy. And they would say, in that sense, I have a high view of Jesus. I think He's great. I like his teaching. I think he turned the other cheek and he cared about the kids and he went and he said the great things and the parables and really, and it's all so great, so I think well of him. But that, compared to a biblical view, is not really a high Christology. A high Christology isn't just what a wonderful moral teacher, what a great example, what a good guy. It's closer along the lines of all things. Were made by him and through him and for him. 
And he's the image of the invisible God. That, my friends, is a high view of Christ. Predating everything, preeminent above everything, responsible for everything, present in everything. You can't get any higher view. And that is the view. So what, do, what does he mean here? For example, here at the beginning when he says the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. What do you mean, apostle? What? Explain yourself. Jesus, of course, himself made it clear to the woman he was talking to. Remember, he said, God is a spirit. God is a spirit. God is not floating about with a body. Uh, you know, he's not like spaceman far away. He's not Thor living in another living in another realm somewhere, kind of stronger and cooler than we are, but you know, still just two arms, two legs, bound in one space-time location. No, no, he says God is a spirit. He's way transcends any kind of physical uh, receptacle. And furthermore, John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time. Well, what about Moses? Didn't he get to kind of see? Yeah, but no. What did he get? The briefest passing glimpse from behind of the glory. Remember that? And that just about lit him up more than he could handle. And so no one has seen God at any time unless or until now, which is part of the point of John's gospel to say, that the Word, which was with God and was God, became flesh. So he says, yeah, nobody's really seen God, but now we have this man who is God. How does that work exactly? We're not. What about if we're in the image of God? Yes, man is made in the image of God. All the people of the world are bearing this image but they are they're never they've never never said that we are the image oh what's the distinction there images can be dangerous israel was told that they ought not make any image that would cause them to be tempted to worship that image no graven images as the king james puts it right so images can be dangerous. And so all throughout Israel's history, you don't they don't have statues. Behold, Yahweh. He looks kind of like this right here. I mean, you get descriptors of the vaguest type, but stopping short of saying here is his image. And certainly they were not supposed to liken their god to any of the majestic things in nature, which is our which is our natural default thing to do. We, we would, absent any revelation, we would, by default, be more or less pagans. And that's not a put-down to us. That's just a description of what we're like because we have in us the desire and the hunger and the need and the intuitive awareness that there must be more and there must be a, something bigger and beyond us and when we look out of the natural world, we're likely to find and seize upon the thing that most inspires us and to sort of make that like our focus of worship. If you have no creator, if you have no God outside of this world, what do you have? You have the greatest thing you can find in this world. And thus, 
the pagan naturally looks to the majestic eagle, the mighty lion, the great mountain, the sun, moon, and stars, things bigger, greater, things that inspire awe in us. And they tend to worship those things. It's quite natural to do. But Israel was told, no, you don't, because you worship the God who made that stuff. He made that stuff out of nothing. So you would be. It, so in their minds, they would seem foolish to them to worship a thing as God that God actually just made. And so that was it. Jesus, though, comes along and is bold enough to say in John 14 to the people listening, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." And that might make someone reading the Bible through, maybe initially. Hmm. Does he mean that God literally looks like whatever Jesus looked like? So like, however Jesus looked, you know, whatever features he had. Ah, that's what he means. He means means this is what God looks like. What are we told from Scripture about the physical appearance of Jesus? We are told it is unimpressive. Aren't we told that? Yes. That that he had nothing about him physically that would make people say, ooh, wow, look at him. That he is very plain. The most ordinary of men, physically speaking. Which, you know, is a little counterintuitive to most people in the world who if they think of the greatest, the most powerful, the mightiest, the godlike. I mean, that's why... You know, we, 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 we can't help it. We, we, think, we think in Marvel terms. You know what I mean? We think he must be, he must be like Thor times ten. He's got to be, he's from, another, he's from out there. He's great. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's, he's everything. Why? He can't just look like some dude walking around. That doesn't make any sense. That's what we're tempted to think. And so it would have been easy to say, behold, the true Messiah, the Son of God. And obviously it's him. Who else could it be? Look at him. He's twelve and a half feet. Tall. He's got like fiery flames in his eyes. When you look in his eyes, you're like terrified. You're, you, you, you see like the depth of the ocean. Your soul is cut to the quick. His words sort of like zoom around whenever he spoke to the people like thunder. Or they all just hit their knees immediately. No, that's not what he was like. It says he had no beauty that he would draw people. And of course, think about the fact that most of the people ever in all history who worship Jesus as Lord across the world, across the continents, across time, most of them, and by most of them I mean like 99.999 practically repeating percent of all the people who ever follow and believe and worship Jesus never saw him. Wouldn't, can't picture his face because they never saw him. Now, it was important that a few did. It was important that, that a few did. Because it was important that we did have eyewitnesses. As the Apostle John again says, in talking about in his letter, he's talking about Jesus to the people, and he says, Yeah, you know him, that one whom our eyes have seen. I saw him. My hands touched him. I, he was there. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a figment. He wasn't a ghost. I wasn't hallucinating. He was a real guy, physical. I was there with him. So it's important that there are eyewitnesses so that this isn't just some legend 
of one long ago a man appeared. No, this is this is real time, real space, and real location with real cities and towns and real political leaders. Weren't you? you know, it's all just part of real history. So it's important that there were some eyewitnesses, but it was not important. God did not think it was that the important thing was that we all get a good look at who he was. And, you know, with apologies to, to those who might really, really, really put a lot of stock in the shroud, even, even that's not exactly a, uh, you know, a, a well-pixelated color portrait, whatever you think of that. It was not the purpose of God that the image of the invisible God be so much literal. Like, see that face? Remember that face? That's God. No, that was an ordinary. That was a forgettable face. The face wasn't important. The voice wasn't important. His stature wasn't important. None of that was important. He's just, here he is. He's just an ordinary average guy. But he was the image of the invisible God, I would argue, in another sense. In terms of the person he was, the, the character, the understanding, the wisdom, the perspective that he had, his, his message, his kingdom mind and everything that he represented, all of that together was sort of this image. If you say, well, I want to know what's God most like. Where do I get the best picture of God? I don't, I don't pull out a photo and say, it looks like that. See, that's Jesus of Nazareth. That's him. And then you say, ah, well, question answered. I now have all my theology wrapped up tight because I saw that photo. That, that's not how that would be. You, wouldn't, you don't know people by looking at them anyway, do you? The world is, again, foolish enough to often think that. We sometimes just automatically will think well of some people because of how they look. And we'll think poor of some people because of how they look. That's just, we're sinners. We do that. Jesus of all things, he's a preeminent example of this too. That you should not, that's not the most, that's not what matters. It was, it was all of his greatness has really, it ends up having little to do with anything physical about him. And so... He is this person. He is the image of the invisible God. God is a spirit. God does not walk around all the time. He, he manifests in a few cases in this and that way, but never did he say, here I am truly as I truly am. Because he's sort of greater than even that. But, but if, if at any point the fullness of God was in one location, it was in Christ. More than ever before. More than ever before. Now sometimes you'll have a great... Uh, person who their 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 sort of greatness is grows over time after the fact, sort of like legend, like we say. So, for example, I remember years ago, the first time I sort of read about the basic life of the man they called Confucius. Now, this is one example, just one example, but it's a good one. This is in a different part of the world, far from Jerusalem, right? In ancient China, along comes a man, Confucius. And this guy, you know, when I was growing up, um, I heard the name of Confucius like some of you because I watched Looney Tunes. I think that's where I heard him. I mean, like, I would hear, I would hear people say this. Confucius say, anybody heard that? And they don't do that anymore. It's sort of passe, and also probably it's considered, like, not exactly entirely correct because it's, because... <laughs> You're sort of like uh, mimicking broken English of a Chinese American or something like that. So they don't do it. But what? But it came from it came from history. It came from the influx of Chinese uh, immigrants who, when they came in, especially in the West, 
A lot of Chinese worked in the West, building the railroads. When they came in, the Chinese interacted with the Europeans who had come uh, to North America. And when they did, they learned enough English that in, with, in that accent, they would often be quoting Confucius. Because he was sort of like the wise man, the way that the way that early Americans who were mostly had mostly been Christianized and churched would probably often be saying, the Bible says, the Bible says. And a lot of the Chinese would say Confucius say. And they would have sayings of wisdom and insight. But this man, Confucius, and now we you read a religions book, oh, he's one of the great religions of the world about Confucianism. First time I read about this guy, I realized he never meant that. He was basically a failed politician. Wanted to reform his society, teach manners to the kids, get back to some traditions. He's, you know, he's just like a lot of people. Country's going crazy. It's the country's going down the toilet. We need to get back to some basic stuff. Get back to our traditions. Teach respect. Teach honor in the family, and so on and so. Forth. And I'm going to run for office, and no one wanted him because, uh, because when you when you uh, really run on those kind of things, uh, a lot of people turn against you. I'm glad that's not true anymore. But yeah, some things don't ever change. You start speaking that kind of stuff, man, people will hate you. So Confucius was a failure. I mean, no one voted for him. But but in the aftermath, they looked back at all the things he had said, and then they sort of came late to the idea that he was actually kind of wise. And from there grew a legend, not just that he was wise, but that he was just greater than wise, that he's the wisest ever, that he's almost supernaturally wise, that he was sort of like sent from heaven to teach us these things. Next thing you know, there's statues built to him and so on and so forth, things he wouldn't have imagined and maybe wouldn't have even approved of. Now, this happens over and over and over. We tend to deify those after the fact once they're gone. What about in our case here, when we read about this and we say, what about Jesus why couldn't he have just been a good guy and a wonderful man and a great moral teacher? And then afterward, because of his great example and great teachings, you know, a lot of people started to, you know, enhance it a little and increase. And then along comes, and then the legend grows and snowballs until he's this. Well, there is one, there are several problems with that theory, but the, the first and foremost of all of them would be that, again, we have, from four different witnesses, the primary source accounts of everything he did and said. And what we know from those is that, unlike Confucius, who didn't run around saying that he was a god and that people should build statues and worship him, Jesus, long before an apostle would say this, Jesus said these kind of things about himself. About himself, first person. On several occasions as recorded by all four of the Gospel writers. After all, Jesus would just blurt out things like that he was has been around from the very beginning. He told them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's just not your average rabbi to make that kind of claim. They said to him, Abraham is our father. Going back to the patriarch, way back, thousands of years, the very beginning. To which Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Not only making a claim of being ancient himself and being greater than Abraham himself, but in a not so subtle way, evoking in Aramaic the very name Yahweh. Because what did they do when they heard him say that? Many of them. 
picked up stones. They thought, oh, okay, uh-oh, now he done said it now. You crossed the line, and they thought there may be there may be high blasphemy charge. We may we may be in for a stoning here, and and of course Jesus uh, escaped that. He said, as we mentioned earlier, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said those kind of things himself. He accepted the worship of people. People worshipped him and he said that's good that they did that. He didn't say, don't worship me, I'm just a man. Don't commit idolatry. Which is what any man should do. Unless he truly is what Jesus claimed. You know, when Paul and Barnabas once were in one of their cities... The people saw some of the things they did, heard them speak, and were so overwhelmed and impressed, these Greeks, that these Greeks hailed them as gods. Why, it's, look, it's, it's Zeus among us here, and Hermes, the, the messenger god, they're here. Wow. And Paul and Barnabas, upon hearing people hail them as gods, they were so distressed, they rent their clothing, it says, and they said to the people, stop saying that. We are just ordinary men. Do not think of us like we're gods. It certainly would be blasphemy for any ordinary guy to run around saying the kind of things that Jesus said. And in fact, as C.S. Lewis famously articulated and other people have pointed it out, if Jesus was an ordinary guy, and he did say those kinds of things, we may have to... We may have to... Uh, Bump him out of the list of great moral teachers. On account of he would be insane. He would be totally insane. What do you think about somebody? What if you knew somebody who walked around saying these kinds of things? Even if, even if on the off day they, they say something that sounds very loving, wonderful, you know, like turn, about turning the other cheek and giving to the poor, you might say, oh, that's nice. And then in the next breath they say, I am the Lord God. I am greater than all I ever thought. I was there. I predate the world. Then you say, yeah. Yeah, that was awfully nice what he said last Tuesday. But he's nuts. Or, or, or something worse. I mean, he's some kind of evil, diabolical imposter. This was essentially what C.S. Lewis famously said about Jesus that he... Because he, he walked around Oxford and he sort of got tired of hearing people who were too sophisticated to believe this high Christology. A little too sophisticated for that. But still wanted to give, give the nod to Jesus. What a great moral teacher. And Lewis is over here saying, uh, great moral teacher who said these kind of things? No, I'm, af- I'm afraid that option isn't available to you. Your options are you either take everything he said and believe it, or you're going to have to admit that he's a madman. Who else would say that kind of stuff? And so, it was good, and it was right, that people worshipped him. And that's why he didn't stop them. He didn't say, don't worship me, only worship God. This is, by the way, a problem still today. It is not easy for everyone to look at someone who was a man, a physical man, who actually lived in, in a body, who died, who, sh- who shed real blood, 
it's a, it's hard for some people to imagine that that he truly could be God, that he truly could be equal with God of the same substance, which is why there are entire swaths of people by the multiplied million who will say they respect Jesus or consider him a great prophet. But if if you read Colossians 1 to them, they will recoil. Colossians 1 is the kind of text that will get some Christians in some parts of the world brought up on the kind of blasphemy charges that I mentioned. You can still get accused of blasphemy because one of those one of those other prophets came along and decided that just can't be. You know the Quran actually even says um, that that he could he was too great a, he was too great a prophet to be crucified. Can't have that. But there's no way that he could be divine. God has no son, they say. Blasphemy, blasphemy. Can't say that. So it still is a struggle. I lived I lived in a part of the world where where um, where the the belief about Jesus was brought down somewhat because the belief was that he was our spirit brother and an exalted man, but not not on par with his own father. Furthermore, it was taught that his own father, God, isn't just a spirit, but does have a body. That was among the Mormons when I lived those years. That was there. So, so when we come to the Bible, we should recognize that when we read time and time again, here in Colossians, when you're looking in Hebrews, when you read the Gospels and you hear Jesus say those things over and over again, you are hit square between the eyes with the highest, highest kind of Christology and with this view of Jesus that, frankly, is... Uh, it's it's remarkable. I mean, it shouldn't just pass over us like it's nothing. It shouldn't. We shouldn't just get used to hearing it. It should always. We should always say, "Whoa, man! It's wild that a mere man would say those things." But of course, that's only because he wasn't a mere man. He was no less than a man. He surely he surely was physical. The early church spent a long time sorting this out. You know, people smarter than all of us spent uh, pages and pages and hours and hours and hours just making sure they want to be as they wanted to be as faithful to the text as possible. So they were going to make sure that they didn't fall off of any side of the horse, you know. They were make sure, we're not, we don't want to go so far that we say, oh, he wasn't even a man after all. No, we don't want to do that. He still was a man. We, but we, we obviously don't want to disregard passages like this. We don't want to take one thing away from everything that Paul says here. That he truly is before all things and in him all things hold together. And of course, when it says he's the head of the church, that really is... That is the defining thing. The church is nothing if this doctrine falls. What are we? We're just, I mean, we're sort of a spiritual social club. And there are churches like that today, by the way. They have long since given up on this belief. They don't really believe these things about him. But they will still name this name for the sake of moral teachings. And they will still gather up to talk about it and maybe read a few of his words. Judge not, lest you be judged. Some of the things that we find kind of nice to hear. But they don't believe they don't believe this stuff anymore. But but we can't be the church if we jettison these beliefs. Because he is the head. What is he? Is he the head of this or not? And so, Jesus, we always must remember, 
is truly worthy. That's the whole thing. It's not awkward. It's not blasphemous. It's not wrong. It's not even weird. It's just true. He's worthy of every bit of this. All these words and all the worship, all the songs we gear toward him. I was remembering, I was mentioning this to Sarah this morning. I remember when I was a kid, this hymn that we would sing, it was in the form of a hymn, though it was kind of, I found out later it was it was written in the 80s, so that, you know, most hymns predate that. It was written in the late 80s by a music professor at Baylor. And I knew it because we sang it all over the Baptist church. A guy from Baylor wrote it, and I think it made its way into the Baptist hymnal. It was written more in the style of a hymn, less in the style like of what we would think of a contemporary chorus. It sounded more... more uh, Hymn, is that a word? Hymnic, hymnal, hymnish, hymnautical, hymn, hymnalian? I don't know. Hymnitic, hymn. It sounded more like a hymn. But that's a noun. Hymnitus? I'm looking for the adjective. What is it? Hymnlock. <laughs> Hymnlock. No, that's the stuff you're not supposed to drink. Uh, it sounded more in the style of a hymn. It didn't have a Tomlin vibe to it. Okay, but that way. Uh, it sounded more like a hymn, but it was called Worthy of Worship. Anybody else ever sing that? Nazarenes ever sing that? Worthy of Worship, Worthy of Praise, Worthy... No one in there? Okay, David record. But David's, but David's like the hymn meister, so he knows every hymn. And I was thinking about it, and of course a lot of our other songs say worthy a lot in them, right? We get that from all over Scripture, and especially you get to the end, Revelation. We get a lot of worthies going on in Revelation, don't we? He's worthy to unlock that scroll and read it and all kinds of worthies. But I thought, you know, it's good that I, it's good that that's in our mind. It's good that I have that still in my mind. See, sometimes we think that the songs we sing in church don't make any difference even to kids growing up in church. That doesn't mean that it's a guarantee. Oh, that kid shall never depart the faith now because we taught him a song. I'm not saying that. But don't ever underestimate the power of words accompanied by music. Music can get words into places in the mind that, that you know, prose can't quite get because it's more poetic and it's got, it's got that melody to it. And so music is a gift to us to get truth into other places, you know. And I've got it. Uh, I've got it in my mind partly. And I thought that's good because we, you know, the church has to keep this at the forefront of the, of the message. What else is our message as we go out into the world other than then we know the image of the invisible God. You want to know what he looks like? You want to know who he is? You wonder? You're groping on people out there. Who is God? What is God like? Oh, can we ever know? I can show you the closest picture. Not on my phone. Not, not in pixels. But in, but in the portrait given to us. In the word of God. Like this text. What's he like? He's like this. This is what he's like. Now this doesn't address his... The, the everything. This is one. You you. The more the Bible is read, the bigger the picture gets, and the more it's filled in. This is why lifelong Bible readers are always filling in the picture, over and over and over and over again each time. We're like those old Bob Ross things, you know. Right? We're you're adding this, and then the, the more you read, it's like ah, yeah, this is a, I just added a friendly little cloud up here. Oh, now it all comes together. Remember, you guys ever used to watch that guy, Bob Ross, he'd be on PBS? And you'd be like, what's he drawing? I can't tell. He didn't look like much because he's just smudging stuff here. And then suddenly, like, he just throws a couple of extra, and they're like, whoa, I see it now. That's amazing. How do you do that? You know, and the kid whips out his easel and says, I'm going to do that. But the kid can't do that. 
Well, when you're reading, you see, you're getting the image of God. You're filling in what God is like over and over. And sometimes, at least in the beginning, it's kind of more confusing. What is this picture? But the more it goes, it comes together, every little wrinkle. So this passage alone isn't the be-all, end-all. It's not it. You read all the Gospels. You read everything he said, everything he did. And then you get the theology. The apostles sort of put it in terms like this. And when it's all said and done, we can go out into the world and say, guess what, world? You're confused. You've you got all kinds of trouble, pain. You don't know which end is up. But we know God. We know what he's like. We know who he is. And here it is. And here it is. It's not some fanciful thing that we invented, but it's it comes from these words. Jesus indeed, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Everything you see, visible and, and invisible. What, what, what inspires all in you? What do you think is powerful? What kind of throne, dominion, what kind of authority? What 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 is it? Whatever it would be, he is greater than that thing. He is above that thing. Before all things, in him all things hold together.